chapter 6. As I was reading through this, there was a couple of different things that came into my mind. Um, and one of the big ones was, as I think I don't remember what year it was. I'm thinking I was in high school or maybe just after high school. But do you guys remember the huge lawsuit with McDonald's and the coffee spill? Does anybody remember that? I don't know, but like it seems soon after that happened, it just steamrolled these lawsuits over things that you just wouldn't think about lawsuits happening, you know, this, the coffee spill. And there was, I think there was a big Walmart one where somebody slipped at Walmart or different things where accidents happened that, that were kind of normal accidents. Somebody can trip and fall or somebody spills coffee or different things where you wouldn't think a lawsuit would happen. And um, as I was thinking about this, I, I went and did some research this past week. And a really interesting study I found at the University of Denver. Did you know that there's 100 million lawsuits filed each year in the United States that are state-regulated lawsuits? 100 million. 400,000 federal lawsuits are filed each year unbelievable amount of lawsuits in America. You could kind of say that America is kind of lawsuit crazy. I mean, they're happening all the time. And now, I just mentioned that because as we're going to look into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul's addressing this very issue. So it's this really weird um, parallel with uh, the church in Corinth and, you know, America. Uh, the church in Corinth was lawsuit crazy. Uh, there's actually a um, recorded record of a, a lawsuit that happened in Athens, and there were 6,000 people on the jury. 6,000. This is recorded history. The, they were lawsuit crazy. It's just amazing to see um, how history is kind of repeating itself over and over again. But uh, let's, let's dive into this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll go through verses 1 through 11. Well, we'll see how far we can get this morning, but... Let's read this. When one of you has a grievance. Now that word grievance here in the Greek is actually the word they would use for lawsuit. So, so Paul directly is talking about lawsuits right from the top here. So when one of you has a grievance or is wanting to file a lawsuit or has a lawsuit against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So he's talking to the church. This is directed to brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where he's going with this. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, Paul's referencing a lot of different scriptures here that, that we, that Christians, will judge the world at one point. In Daniel 7.22, you might want to make notes of this. You can look it up later, but... Daniel 7:22, Matthew 19:28 and Luke 22:28 through 30 talk about that. He goes on and he says, "And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church?" I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. You may want to underline that. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud? 
even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous, I'm going to take a moment here, this word unrighteous, this in the Greek is a present tense verb. It's referring to um, sins that are living out habitually. This is not, oh, oh, I've made a mistake or I told a lie or just this one occurrence. This is, this is referring to sins that, that are acted out and, and almost um, accepted and living out in sin. So that's the unrighteous. That's what he's talking about, this living out a habitual lifestyle of sin. Uh, it's a being dominated by sin. We could look at a couple other scriptures like 1 John 3, 6, and 9 that use that same word. Move on here. Unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. Paul's just making this list, trying to make a point that that. These are not the people who we should go before when we have grievances with one another. Now get this. He goes on in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. All right, that's God's word for us today. Just a really, really powerful text, a really powerful scripture, really good things here. The first thing I, I want us to take away from this, it's the first fill-in in your notes, is this. Take one for the kingdom. Take one for the kingdom. That's basically what Paul is saying. You ever heard the phrase, take one for the team? Paul's saying, hey, take one for the kingdom. We see it in verse 7. It says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Wow. Could you imagine this? Could you think, think of what it must have been like to be the church in Corinth. Paul says, just be wronged. Just live with it. Why not just be defrauded? Just, just go ahead and just live with that. I mean, instantly, think about it. even even hearing that myself, I'm like, wait, wait a second. That's not fair. That, there's no justice in that. I mean, I, I thought, you know, we're, we have to go judgment and, and righteousness. And isn't God balanced? I mean, isn't, isn't he fair? Isn't it going to be fair? But Paul's making a really good point. As Christians... As we follow Christ and we journey in Christianity, there's an amazing supernatural thing that God begins to do in and through our lives. He, he starts to take us from this, this great concern about self, this, this whole idea of, of taking care of, of me, number one, this selfish mentality, and he, he starts to shift it. And this picture of, of this me-centered, this self-centered world changes. And, and if I could draw you a picture, you know, we have this, this circle of life, right? And, and you have yourself kind of in this center circle, and you have your family on the outside, and you have your kids and your um, coworkers and your friends. You have your job over here and, and all these other things. But as, as God sanctifies us and changes us by the power of his spirit, what happens is, is he takes us from the center of that picture and he replaces us 
with his son, Jesus. And all of these great concerns and all of these these ideas and preferences and other things start to fall away. And, And we start to live a life that's more concerned about the glory of God than it is about being defrauded myself. Or being wronged myself. And I go from from this idea and thought process of I've been wronged. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to take this person to court. And they're going to see what they've done. And they're going to pay the price. From that to how can God be most glorified in my response right now? What is God doing in this situation, this, this struggle, this strife that I'm, I'm working through? I'm hurt. I, and, and that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? We get hurt. And let's just be real, man. I mean, sometimes, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, man, they cut the deepest. Because we trust each other. And the Bible tells us that we should love each other. And when we, when we fail, when we make mistakes and we say something silly or sinful, or we do something silly or sinful, it hurts those around us. And it hurts deep because as brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible tells us that we're to be vulnerable with one another, that we're to trust one another, and that we partner together for the gospel and for the ministry that God's put before us. And we're, we're working for the kingdom together. And, and when we see somebody that does something wrong to us, it, it cuts us really deep. Kind of our first thought isn't, how can God be glorified in this? It's, man, I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to build these walls up. I'm not talking to them ever again. I'm done, man. I'm out. Not... God, how can you be glorified in this? God, what are you doing in my relationships right now? God, what are you doing in my brother and sister right now? And how can I be a part of that? Maybe it's loving confrontation. Maybe it's going to them and saying, hey, man, that was, that was wrong. That was sinful. And that really hurt. But you know what? God's doing something in this in me. And I need to forgive you. We need to work through this. And you know what? I'm, I'm most concerned that God would be glorified as we work through this than anything else. What would, it, <laughs> what would our lives look like if we actually handled things this way? Think about it. Every single one of us sitting here right now, everybody watching online, all of us have been through conflict. I mean, in, in pretty, I mean, constant conflict. Sometimes there's always people somewhere that disagree with you and are arguing with you about something. What if we approach these types of things with God's glory at the center? That I'm most concerned about God's glory than being defrauded or being wronged or justice being served. They're going to get theirs. When we're more concerned about self-preservation, when we're more concerned about us getting what we deserve, it never, ever reflects the glory of God. And that's really what Paul's getting at. He says, again, if you're going to go to court against one another, you've already lost. You've already failed. 
look, what, what, kind of, what kind of model is that of God, God's love to the world? That is no, that is no reflection of the glory of God and forgiveness and repentance and these beautiful practices that God's given us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've already lost. We have to get past the pain. We have to get past the hurt. We have to get past the selfishness and into the selfless and focus on Christ. Where, where can we find, I mean, where do we find the, the strength to, to walk that out? I mean, that is, I don't know if you've noticed or not yet, but that's exactly the opposite of human nature, culture, and everything we see today. I mean, right? I mean, just, just look at the first presidential debate. Wow. Like, there is, it is all, it is all self-preservation and all selfishness and all throwing people under the bus, man. It is, our culture is this angry against one another culture. This is, I mean, so, you know, what we find in scripture 100% of the time is that what God teaches and what God commands is completely opposite of what our world lives out and endorses. I don't know if you've picked up on that or not yet, but, um, but that's really what happens. That's why it is, it is such a key for us that, that the very beginning and foundation of all things that we believe and act and do come from this book. We believe that this is God's word, God breathed, that, that men may have pinned it onto papyrus or whatever, but it was a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit and God was in every drop of ink that reached the page. This is inerrant, authoritative, and authoritative for our life in everything that we do. So when we read it, as you pick up on this, and if you haven't picked up on it already, every sermon I teach and every sermon that comes from this pulpit, whether it's me or one of the other pastors, one of the other elders or whatever, it's going to be truth that, that we believe is God, is actual God's word for us, that he knows better than us. And that, that is actually total counterculture to what we look at and talk about. I mean, just look at the text we read last week and, and the text we read this week. What God calls sin is sin. We believe that. But that's not what the world believes. The world believes that, that some sin, what the Bible calls sin, they think is good. They endorse it. They promote it. And they think that we should just enjoy it and do it. But we don't believe that. We believe God's word is truth. And that God knows what's best for us. God's not trying to take the joy out of life and and make us all depressed? No, he wants to give us real lasting joy. He created us to be in relationship with him. And he's saying, no, 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 no. I created you this way. If you want the most joy, come with me. Obey me. I know what's best for you. So that's kind of the, one of the foundations. But where do, we, where do we get the real power and strength to live out that counterculture? That against what, what everybody's telling us is right and and, and where do we get that power? We find it here in the text as we move on to verse 11. Paul says, And such were some of you. He has this, this long list. I already read it. I'm not going to read it again. It's not an exhaustive list. He's just trying to make a point here. This habitual living in sin 
And now let's think back. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians for, for a while here. We know that, that the church in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church was very prideful and thought they were awesome. And they didn't think much of Paul's preaching. They thought he was a good writer, but he wasn't very good looking and he wasn't very good with words. So, you know, they were hard on him and everything else, but they were full of pride. He makes this long list, right? And he says all these things. And he, then he goes, and such were some of you. Ouch. Whoa, wait a second. I'm sure as he's reading through this long list of, of things that God calls sin, you know, they're thinking, oh, yes. Those people over there, they're the real sinners. You know, they're reading this letter in church. They're sitting out there hearing this list. Oh, yeah. Those swindlers. Yep, yep. Terrible people. We shouldn't be with them. Oh, yes. Those, those people over there. Liars, yes. Charlatans. And such were some of you. And such was me. But such were some of you. What's he say next? But. I love, I love as we look at Scripture... You will see it over and over and over again. This huge, amazing three-letter word, but. And you'll, sometimes you'll see it just by itself. And sometimes you'll see it this way, but God. It's the biggest three-letter word in all of Scripture. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Who are we, Mission View? Who are you? We are washed, sanctified, and justified. Now that's good news. That's the second filling in your notes if you're following along that way. God reminds us of what he has saved us from. He's not just reminding the Corinthian church, hey, God saved you. You were broken. You were lost. You were on your way to hell. You were dead in your trespasses. He's, rem he's reminding us that God has saved us from that. We were washed. All of us destined to hell because of the sinful hearts we inherited and chose. All of us in desperate need of a savior, someone greater, someone stronger. We were all at one time before the grace and mercy of Christ invaded our lives. Swindlers, greedy, sexually immoral, idolaters. None of us are exempt. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all struggled with some sort or all of these things. Don't deceive yourself. And don't forget what you've been saved from. That's what Paul's trying to make the point here. The sting they must have felt when Paul said this. Now this really cool thing. As he says, you were washed, sanctified and justified. These are all past tense. Things that have already happened. These three things are already true right here and right now. This is huge. This is huge for us. I want to talk about what this means. We really, we really need to soak this in. Washed in the blood of Jesus for the cleansing of our sins. Paul's referring to baptism here. We are washed in the blood of Christ. This baptism, it symbolizes 
the cleansing of our sins, our dying to the old self and being raised to new life, born again in Christ. It is an outward proclamation of an inward grace that God is doing in us. This beautiful thing called baptism. It's a picture of the proclamation to the church and everyone watching that God has me, that God has changed me. And, and we die to our sins as we go under and we come up and we're raised to new life in him. We do it as a symbol, but we do it as obedience. That Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist, his cousin. And then he, he tells us, he commands us, he says, he says, baptize those in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them into the family. It's a beautiful celebration and picture of an inward grace and work that God does in us. You have been forgiven for all that you have done and will do in your life. God, existing outside of time, sees all things, knows all things, and nothing is outside of his provision in our lives. You are truly and fully forgiven because Jesus' blood was shed for you. That's what he means when he says you were washed. And then he says you were sanctified. That means you were changed. Not just that you are being changed, but you are a new creature, not the same. God has raised you from the dead, given you a heart transplant, and placed his Holy Spirit in you. Now you have the strength through him to turn from sin and to the Lord. You have been set apart for God. Sanctified. You are justified. Now this is a, this is a big term. As soon as he would have said this word, they would have been, their eyes and ears, everything would have just been like, whoa, 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 what? Wait, justified? This is a strong legal term. And think about it. He's talking about lawsuits and everything else. This is, this has been a hot topic for them. The cost of your sin against a holy and perfect God has been paid. There was a glorious exchange that day on the cross and we and all who believe on Christ were justified in the eyes of God. The very righteousness of Christ was imputed onto us when we believed in him. We are no longer under the wrath of a holy and righteous God, but now sit in favor and are adopted into his family as sons, and all of us will receive an inheritance one day. We go from wrath to grace and favor in God. We are justified now and forever. Even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is the now and not yet kingdom that Jesus talked about. Though we walk the earth now and we struggle with temptation and with sin, these struggles and, and sometimes other failures that we have in our lives, these things don't define us. This isn't who we are. They do not determine our destiny or our eternity. God, through the work of Jesus, has already done that past tense. And that, this whole idea, think about this, the list that, that Paul gives, and he says, but were some of you, or that such were some of you, but God has washed, sanctified, and justified you. That's where we find the power to live out what he's talking about. That's where we find the power to live out all the things that God has for us. We have to be real. We have to be real about who we are. And we have to be real about who God is and what it means for us. That's 
why theology is so important. Justified, sanctified, washed, baptism, these things, these doctrines, these amazing things that God has given us. Sometimes we just throw a word out there that just doesn't mean much to us until we dive into it and really talk about what it means. We have to be real and, and acknowledge, acknowledge who we were before Christ came into our lives. I had a guitarist one day. I grew up playing guitar and a guy, a guy I played with and took lessons from and, and um, he was teaching me one time and we were working through some guitar techniques and he says, Matt, you're never, you're never going to get to where you want to go unless you know where you've come from. And what he was telling me is that I really need to, needed to study the basics, you know, and, and the original guys if I really wanted to grow in my guitar playing. I think that rings true for our Christian walk as well. Follow me on this, that as soon as we forget what God has saved us from, we stunt our growth in our, our discipleship. Our, our hearts have to be broken, have to be broken by our sin. And it's not like we stop sinning. We all continue to sin. We don't live in habitual sin, but we struggle with temptation. We struggle with sin. But so often, our hearts become hardened to, to what we, at one time, abhorred. And then we saw a comedian talk about it, and we laughed about it. And then we saw some TV shows that promote it and endorse it. And the next thing you know, it's just fine with us. This progressive, it's not, it's not progressive sanctification, it's a progressive callousing of our hearts. We have to be real. We just celebrated communion today. The creator of the universe put on flesh, became a man, and died for our sins. We have, to, we have to wrap our minds around that and allow the Holy Spirit to do an amazing work of transformation. I heard a great teacher one time say that to the extent that our hearts are broken by our sin, to that same extent we'll be set free from our sin. And that's so true. But we don't live in a heart brokenness. We live in the joy of our salvation and what Christ has done for us. He doesn't leave us in this brokenness and in this understanding of, of sin, which is really good for us to know. He doesn't leave us there. He says, but God in his great mercy and amazing grace has washed us and has sanctified us and has justified. It's already complete. It's already done. You don't have anything to do but trust in God and put your faith in him. And that, and that is where we find the power and the strength to walk out righteousness. I'm not trying to be righteous during my way into heaven. I'm already there. I'm already seated at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus Christ. I just, now I live like it. I'm so thankful that he's, he's done that and, and worked his, his power in me that I live out a righteous life because of who he is. What else can I do but lay my life down at his feet? What an amazing picture Paul's painting for us today. That's freedom. That's true freedom. It's not 
It's not a bondage to a list of do's and don'ts. It's a continual reminder of the grace and mercy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the more and more I fall in love with him, and the more and more that I see him as the sacrifice for my sin, the more and more I want to do what's right in his eyes. That's the power of the Christian life. When we get there, I'm not even worried about being defrauded. I'm not even worried about being wronged. I'm worried about the continual work of sanctification or change God's doing in me and the opportunity for sanctification and change he's doing in my brother or sister that has wronged me. What an amazing picture. Let's look at verse 12. Paul goes on in this thought process. You'll notice the quotation marks maybe. I don't know if all of your, the uh, translations have this or not, but he, he starts throwing some of their words back in their face on them here. He says, all things are lawful for me. That's what they were saying in Corinth. All things are lawful for us, you know, this grace and mercy of God, you know. All things are lawful. I can just do whatever I want. Paul then says, though, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. They would say things like this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Therefore, I'm going to go to a cheesecake factory and eat a complete cheesecake because it's amazing. Or I'm going to go to Pabst and eat seven quarts of strawberry ice cream. No. Paul says, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He goes on, and this, this whole idea of, of where we can go off to is, as he's sharing this amazing truth of the grace and mercy of God is not, is not a freedom to go and do whatever and sin in any way. That whole idea of being dominated by anything. And God raised, in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's continuing this, this, this thought that we talked through last week, this whole idea and thought process. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I, I think this is really another, you know, empowering point we have to get our minds around. Is that the very, the very spirit of God lives inside of you and me. You are, you are not out there. We are not out there living our lives on our own. There's nothing that we experience and go through that we don't experience and go through with God. It's, it's not just this amazing being washed and sanctified and justified. It is, that's amazing. But it's that the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. He's empowering us and changing our minds and, and bringing conviction of sin when it's there that, that draws us to repentance and draws us to him. 
How, how often in our lives do we, do we actually get up in the morning? I don't know about you. I don't do this very often, but do we get up in the mornings? We're like, wow, God lives in me and is going to empower me to live out a righteous life today. I, I'm not living this life on my own. I'm not dealing with my coworkers on my own. I'm not dealing with this, all these things going on around me on my own, but I, God is with me. God is, I don't know about you. I just don't wake up that way, right? Maybe you do. I don't know. But that's another thing that Paul's giving us to remember and, and to really focus on as we're working through these kinds of things. God doesn't call us his own and then leave us to our own devices. But he lives in us and through us and empowers us by his spirit. So how do we find this strength? We remember, we remember what God has saved us from. And we remember that we are washed, sanctified, and justified. And we remember that Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, lives in us. Lives in us. It, it changes what movies I go see. It changes what TV shows I watch. It changes what I do with my free time. Always, my kids, they always ask me to go see movies or different things. And my kids are older now, so 22 and 19 and 17. And I say, well, would you watch if Jesus were sitting right beside you? Because he is. He is. Those questions, this idea that, that God is in us, it changes our perspective. I'm kind of taking us into next week's sermon, but I wanted to do that because I think that, that Paul's, sometimes our, our Bibles are broken up in paragraphs and different headings and different things. That's not how they were in the original manuscripts. It's one continuous thought. So I wanted to kind of tie the two together because I think it was important. Those three things that I just shared with you, I think it's really important. We go with, with Paul's continual thought process there. We'll finish up this idea um, next, next Sunday. But, but this, is, this is what God has for us as a church. This is what God has for you as his sons and daughters. That he, he knows what's best for us. And as we work through this life and we look, work through the differences that culture says and what, what God says is right, that God's going to empower us to walk through these things by his grace and mercy. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. And as we, as we go from this place, God, I pray that you would give us the strength to, to confront uh, brothers or sisters who may, may have sinned against us. God, that you would strengthen us to, to not really worry about the wrongs that have been done against us or the, the defrauding, but we would be more, more concerned about your glory that we would be more concerned about our brother or sister's sanctification, that we would be more concerned about what you're doing in our hearts and in us through these, these difficult conflicts that sometimes we face. And Lord, as we work through your word and, and we see the, the drastic difference of morality in your word and in our culture today, God, I pray that you would give us peace and that you would give us strength to endure and walk through the things that you've called us to, that we would speak up for truth and stand up for truth. But God, we would, 
We would love those around us that are suffering and, and don't know you. Give us opportunity to be your children and to speak the truth in love in winsome ways for your kingdom and for your glory. We offer all these things up to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing our closing song today.